Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study here of Matthew's gospel. If you don't have Bible, we got a Bible in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure you got God's Word in your hands as you take it home. Well, for the past six weeks, we have been studying the most famous sermon in Scripture. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And he still lives. His name is Jesus Christ. The first section of Jesus' sermon here is called the Beatitudes. Beatitudes comes from the, the Latin word beati. And it means blessed. And that's why Jesus repeats himself as he does in the first 12 verses here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. See, the, the Beatitudes are foundational. They are doctrinal teachings for the kingdom of God. They are impossible to do from a human perspective. The Beatitudes, what they do is they drive us to recognize our sin, to confess that sin, and to be born again. Only when we are born again can we become humble, can we hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, this is where we learn mercy, we strive for purity. And last Sunday, we looked at the sixth beatitude, Matthew 5 eight. blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So as a review here, for something to be pure, it means that there are no contaminants in it. There's nothing mixed into this. And we discussed the amazing promise for those of us who are pure in heart, that they will see God. They will not only see Jesus, but they will see Jesus as he truly is. It's, it's not a theophany or, or any kind of display or a manifestation of his holiness like, like Moses and those of the Old Testament, but they will see God himself in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his authority. We will see him face to face. It's, it's the supreme blessing for God's people. It's called the beatific vision. So please know that when you take your last, breath, your last breath here on earth, you will be apart from this body, and you will instantly be in the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. And if you're born again, the presence of Jesus as your Savior, it, what it does is it instantly removes the remaining sin that's in your life. Your heart is immediately purified. And as Scripture promises, you will be with Jesus for eternity. However, the relationship is, is a little bit different, drastically different, if you're not born again. Uh, you too will be in the presence of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, however, is not your Savior, but your judge. And, because, and the reason for that is because you refuse the grace of God. 
Uh, you stand on your own merit. The, the grace of God is salvation through Jesus and his blood on the cross. It's called substitutionary atonement. He is our substitute. Um, so what happens is you stand before a holy God on your own merit. And scripture tells us that that decision, dear friend, uh, to live life on your own merit will result in you paying for your sin in a very real place called hell for eternity. Romans 6.23 says this, the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's why the purity of our hearts is such a glorious beatitude to understand. Last Sunday, we, we talked about two types of purity. First, the uh, positional purity, the purity that comes from being born again, um, and then practical purity. Practical purity is where we live it out. That's the hard one. Um, we also discussed two enemies of our purity. Enemy number one is synchronism. This, this, once again, is the mixing in of all of these things into our life, the impurities of the world, the false religions, and also our own false beliefs. We mix those into the grace of God. We talked about enemy number two being entertainment. The more entertained we are by the world, the more we're going to look like the world. And then lastly, I gave you two suggestions on how to pursue purity for your heart. And, and that was, number one, to read God's word consistently, preferably daily. And number two, to commit to God's church. Because God's word and God's people are the only two things that are eternal. And those two suggestions, they set us up beautifully for our next beatitude today. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The subject of peace, mm, that's a big one. The world longs for peace, but will never achieve it. The universal church has peace, but doesn't understand it. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into really a unique part of Jesus's personality today. Being a peacemaker is, is part of Jesus's passion because it, it ties directly into being pure in heart. We're also going to see how this beatitude of peace, it brings some confusion with the scriptures as well. Many people believe that the Bible is filled with all sorts of, of contradictions, and many of those so-called contradictions involve this subject of peace. For example, Jesus says in this beatitude, right? He says, blessed are the peacemakers. They're going to be called sons of God. And then in five chapters later, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 10, Jesus says this, don't assume that I came to bring peace. On the earth, I came to bring a sword, for I came to turn a man against his, his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The one who loves a father or more, uh, mother more than me, it's not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So what in the world is Jesus saying? Is he talking out both sides of his mouth here? This beatitude about peace today is probably one of the hardest to understand. And it's even harder to live out. So how are we to make sense of all this? And how are we, when we walk out of here today, how are we to apply all of these things to our lives? Well, let's find out, guys. If you would, please stand for the reading 
and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 1 to give us the full context. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you falsely, and they say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Please be seated. Thank you. All right, let's dive in here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Now, this statement probably shocked the disciples, the other people listening. They had this idea that the Messiah was, he was going to be a military man. And Jesus is, there's no doubt. And, and, but see, that's in his second coming. Isaiah foretold the Jews, that the Messiah would come first as a suffering servant. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. So back to our beatitude here, blessed. Blessed in the Greek, makarios, it means happy. It means carefree and fortunate all at the same time. So why are these people happy? Back to, to uh, verse 9 here, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, the first thing that needs to be said here is that Jesus is not talking about a 45 caliber Colt peacemaker. All right? We love Jesus. We also, we also love our First and Second Amendment here at River Bible Church, but uh, we are not talking about a Colt peacemaker. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about here, a Colt peacemaker is a legendary gun in the Old West. But Jesus did not say, blessed are those with weapons. He did not say that. Jesus did tell Peter, though, after Peter tried to protect Jesus from being arrested. In Matthew 26, 52, he said, Peter, put your sword back in its place. Because all who take up that sword will perish by the sword. But the interesting thing is, just a little bit earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus prepares the disciples for persecution, and he says in Luke twenty-two thirty-six, 36, he says, hey, whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. So once again, do we have a contradiction in Scripture? Well, let's start with peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And when we think of peace today, we generally think about things that prevent violence. Webster's Dictionary defines peace as a state of tranquility. There's a state of security with peace. 
We also think that, that peace is the absence of war. It's the absence of conflict in our home. And to a certain degree, those things are true, there's no doubt. But they're also inadequate. The scripture contains 400 direct references to peace, many other indirect references. The Bible opens with peace in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it closes with the promise of eternal peace with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're born again. But something happened along the way from Genesis to Revelation, didn't it? The world we live in, it's broken. So what happened? What happened along the way there? You know, if you gave someone a Bible who has never read Scripture before, and you told them to read the first six chapters of Genesis, and then the following week, you would meet with them, have a cup of coffee with them, discuss what they read. But you didn't tell them that you gave them a modified Bible. You ripped out the story of the fall. Genesis 3, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 7. I mean, it's only seven verses out of the whole Bible. What's the big deal about that? Well, your friend reads Genesis chapter 1. It's the big picture of creation. He reads Genesis 2. God zeroes in. He, he, gives, uh, he gives us more detail about how he creates man and woman and then the covenant of marriage. Your friend gets to, Genesis, to the end of Genesis chapter 2. Everything is perfect. Everything is beautiful. Everything is peaceful. And verse 25 says, Both the man and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame. So in other words, perfect peace in the garden. And then your friend turns the page, not to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, but to verse 8, which says, Then, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, wait a second. Why are they hiding? Shouldn't they be rejoicing with God in the garden? Your, your friend goes on to read about the big fights uh, where Adam blames God and then he blames Eve. Eve blames a talking snake of all things. Your friend goes on to read about Adam and Eve's children murdering one another. And then he gets to Genesis chapter 6 and he reads this, verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he, he made man on earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the, then the Lord said, you know what? I'm going to wipe out mankind whom I created. I'm going to wipe everybody off the face of the earth together with the animals, with all the creatures, with the birds, because I regret that I made them. So let me ask you, what do you think your friend would, uh, would ask you at your coffee meeting? After reading all of that, what, wouldn't, he, wouldn't he ask something like this? What happened? What on earth happened? In the beginning of the story, everyone is at peace with one another, but now there's only hostility and hatred and worldwide destruction? Man, what happened? Uh, you'd then have to tell your friend that dirty little secret that you ripped out seven verses in that narrative, and it's called the fall. The fall is what happened. The fall is where peace was disrupted and it, it got in the way of the relationship between God and man. Peace has been broken 
in those seven verses, in that fall, and mankind has been living in a state of brokenness and searching for some kind of, of peace ever since. Let me give you a couple of recent examples here. World leaders developed an agency called the United Nations. The goal of the UN is to maintain peace around the world. Question, how are they doing with that? How many peace treaties have been broken over the past 100 years? All of them. All of them. The Nobel Peace Prize is given to those who strive for all kinds of peace work and, and the concepts of peace. The Peace Corps has a mission to promote world peace. But once again, are any of those efforts truly working? No. And why not? We have to ask, why aren't these, these things working? The answer is because the world is incapable of establishing peace. The good news is that God already has. So let's take a look at peace from a biblical standpoint now. In the Old Testament, peace is, is often used to describe a relationship that's characterized by loyalty and by love. Peace is perhaps one of the most treasured virtues among Jewish people. Peace is undoubtedly one of their favorite words. The Hebrew term shalom, it means completeness, fulfillment, and blessings. The deepest meaning of shalom is this, God's highest good to you. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord of our peace. God told Moses how to pray for the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 6. He said, may the Lord bless you, protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. The Bible also has a lot to say about war. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 20.10, when you guys approach a city to fight against it, make an offer of peace. Scripture has a lot to say about peace with others. That is foundational throughout the Scriptures. For example, Psalm 122.8, because of my brothers and my friends, I will say, peace be with you. But on the other hand, the psalmist also cries out in anguish because of the lack of peace in the world. Psalm 120, verse 6, I have dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. God teaches us about uh, peace within our, our provisions. He says this in Proverbs 17:1. better to eat a dry crust with peace than a house full of feasting with strife. God teaches parents how to have peace with their children. Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your child and it will bring you peace of mind and give you delight. But the most important part of peace is having peace with God. See, our peace was disrupted. It was broken in the Garden of Eden. So how do we get it back? How, how do we undo what's been done? How do we as sinners make peace with a holy God? Well, the first thing to note here is that having the peace of God, it involves much more than the world's definition. 
the world's definition of the absence of hostility. Scripture tells us why the world will always have hostility. They will never achieve peace. Look at this. Prophet Isaiah says this twice in Isaiah 48 and chapter 57. He says, there is no peace for the wicked. So if there's no peace for the wicked, a.k.a. the world, this means that the closest thing that the world can experience to peace is a truce. A truce is not peace. A truce is a temporary respite from fighting. A truce sacrifices peace. A truce says that you lay down your guns just for a moment, giving everybody enough time to reload. That's what a truce is. Scripture provides two primary reasons that the world will never experience peace. Number one, the opposition of Satan. And number two, our disobedience. The disobedience of mankind. Jesus tells us Satan's mission statement in in John 10.10. That is to steal and kill and destroy. And then both in the Old Testament and the New, it tells us... um, about our disobedience, the disobedience of mankind. In Psalm 14, in Psalm 53, and in Romans chapter 3, God says the same thing here. He says, there is no one who does what is good. Not even one. So the question becomes, wait a second. If no human being is good and can't bring peace to the world, then what's our solution? Well, the solution comes from outside of us. It's outside of this world. And here's the fascinating thing. The solution has already been provided by God. And it was provided by God moments after Adam and Eve sinned in the fall. Genesis 3.15, this is God the Father speaking. He says, I, I'm going to put hostility between you, that's Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So who's the he in this verse? When in doubt, always shout, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus Christ, the the second person of the Trinity. Genesis 3.15, it's known as the the proto-evangelum. It's a Latin term. It means the first gospel. So how do we know? How do we know that, that the he there in Genesis 3.15 is Jesus? Well, the prophet Isaiah reveals this. Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given, the government will be on his shoulders, he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So in other words, the world will never know peace because they don't know Jesus. They can talk about peace, but what they're really discussing is a truce. And the truce is because of the hate that they have in their hearts towards God and also towards one another. See, men are without peace because they are without God, who is the source of peace. So when Jesus says, back to verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus is speaking much more about the absence of conflict 
See, a biblical definition of peace is, is not the absence of something, but rather it's the presence of something. Brings us to key point number one. Peace is the presence of righteousness. Peace is the presence of righteousness. And the reason Jesus is the Prince of Peace is because he ushers in righteousness and holiness into this very dark world, this broken world, this sinful world that we live in. Only righteousness can produce the peace that will bring two people, two parties, two nations back together. Sinful men cannot create peace because sin is in their hearts, which produces nothing but conflict. Conflict, blame, hatred, that's been going on since Genesis chapter 3. Sinful men are not pure in heart. They are deceived about their own goodness and self-righteousness. The world believes that they are intrinsically good. Scripture has much to say about that. So the best that the world can do here is either call a truce where you separate the parties or the people, or at best you establish some type of compromise. A truce is a form of peacekeeping, not peacemaking. A truce is always broken. Why is that? Because although you may separate the parties for a little bit, you're not separating them from their sin. And that's the key to being a peacemaker. It's addressing sin. Key point number two. A peacemaker addresses sin. A peacemaker addresses sin. See, a peacemaker cannot sidestep sin because sin is the source of every single conflict. Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, he never bypassed the issue of sin. When Jesus said, back to Matthew 10, when he said, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He means peace, yes, I'm bringing peace, but not at any price. In other words, we see this peace throughout the scriptures, right? There's going to be opposition before there is harmony. There's going to be conflict before there's peace. To be peacemakers on God's terms requires righteousness. Righteousness, the right thinking that leads to right behavior. And the world hates this. The world despises righteousness. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus ever keep his mouth shut for the sake of false unity? Did Jesus ever call a truce? No. See, Jesus confronted sin at every level. So although Jesus was the Prince of Peace, he knew he first had to be a disruptor to the illusion of peace that we have in this world. Everywhere Jesus went, he disrupted the normalcy of life, so much so that they murdered him for it. The apostles in the book of Acts, they did the same thing. All through Acts, Paul was causing riots. People lost their mind when Paul preached Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And yet, in nearly every epistle that Paul wrote, he opens the letter with grace to you and peace. So what's wrong with Paul? Why is he causing riots but writing about peace? 
See, this is the heavenly dichotomy that, that we face here with the Beatitudes and, and other parts of Scripture. And the truth is, is a hard pill to swallow. And the truth is this. Key point number three. The person unwilling to address sin cannot be a peacemaker. The person unwilling to address sin cannot be a peacemaker. And yet Scripture tells us that God, He is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. One of the primary reasons that so many critics of the Bible believe that there are so many contradictions in the Bible is because they read it in the first person. They insert themselves into the narrative. The problem is that the Bible is not about them. It's about Jesus. Jesus doesn't live here. He's got a heavenly zip code. His ways are higher than ours. Isaiah chapter 55. And that's why the cross is the most significant peacemaking symbol that there is. The I mean, it's ironic because the cross is, is violent. The cross is filled with blood. And yet Jesus embraced all of this for peace and for reconciliation. When you have reconciliation, you have peace. And it's through the, the cross, it's through the cross of Christ that we are reconciled back to a holy God. The Apostle Paul writes this. This is so good. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. He said, For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him. That's Jesus. And through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile everything back to Himself, whether things on the earth, whether things in heaven, by making peace. How did Jesus make peace? Through his blood that was shed on the cross. Dear friends, the most crucial type of peace you will ever experience is peace with God. And that's what the gospel is all about. Reconciling what happened in the fall. So back to verse 9 here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. That word they there, autos in the Greek, it's a specific group of people. It's, it's the ones that make peace. They are the ones that, we be, that will be called the sons of God. That term called there, it means owned. A, a more literal translation would, would read, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be owned as the sons of God. It's interesting because Jesus, he chooses a particular word in the Greek for sons. He says sons of God. He had two options. Number one, technon. It means child, little child. It's a term of affection. It's a term of endearment. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses heos, which is sons. Heos, what it does is it expresses a dignified and an honorable way or a son back to his parents. So as, as God's peacemakers, as the church, we are promised the blessings of eternal sonship. We are brought back into a peaceful relationship with God the Father because of the cross. We are dignified. We are distinguished as sons of God. Why? Because we're not like the world. We are so unlike the world. And, and this brings us full circle 
Um, back to the beginning of this beatitude, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're going to be called the sons of God. Why are peacemakers blessed? Because peacemakers don't look like the world. They look and they act like their heavenly father. Peacemakers reflect the purity of God's heart and, and they care. We care about the sin that drives people apart. We also care about the sin that prevents people from having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Dear friends, I hear this all the time. Everybody needs a personal relationship with Jesus. It's better to say everybody needs a saving relationship with Jesus because everybody has a personal one with him. They need a saving one. And it's a primary reason that we teach the Bible verse by verse so that you can share Jesus day by day. Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are the feet who bring the good news. I love that. So one of our goals here at River is, is to equip you into being this loving, gracious, bold person with the truth so that you can be a peacemaker. There are so many different applications to this. Um, this. This one beatitude could have been a three-part series. I could have preached for three hours on this beatitude, but I, I know some people, I won't mention any names, will be, um, will be glad that we didn't. There are so many applications to this beatitude today. I, I, I want to end today by focusing on some of the obvious. Um, to experience true peace in your own life, it means that you must first be born again. That's where it starts, guys. Because we see, the, we, we see God in his fullness with how he provides peace. Think of this. The Father is the source of, of peace. We have Jesus as the Son who is the sign. He's the display. He's the manifestation. We could say he's the model of our peace, and, yet, and then the Holy Spirit is the agent of that peace in our lives. So the first priority in experiencing peace is to be born again. That means that we confess our sins to God, we turn from our sins, and we believe that Jesus is God because he was raised from the dead. Romans 10.9. Secondly, peace is never found in circumstances. Please know that. Peace is never found in your external circumstances. This is one of the reasons I encourage you guys to turn the world off, right? Turn the news off, turn the, turn the entertainment off, uh, social media off. You can check those things, but to watch them for hours upon hours is not good because those mediums are based on circumstances. The current state of affairs will not bring peace to your life. It will only escalate your fear. And that's one of the many reasons that we do not do newspaper exegesis here at River Bible Church. We don't. We're not going to preach topically because if we did, we would never get to the gospel. I mean, are you really surprised that there are wars and rumors of wars today? If you're a born-again believer, you shouldn't be. As a believer, what the news should do, 
The news should confirm the biblical teaching that you're getting here this morning. Why, why is it a confirmation? Because we're a group of people who believe in the book. And the book tells us about the holiness of God and the depravity of sin. The book tells us how this whole thing ends. See, our peace doesn't come from external circumstances. Our peace comes from the book. And that's why Bible is our, our middle name. Lastly, we, we have all of us, we all have someone in our life that we're not at peace with. So let me give you one last verse here to chew on before we leave. And that is Romans 12, 18. If at all possible, I love this. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So when it comes to that person that you're thinking of, the question is, have you done your part to be a peacemaker? Once again, this is not about truce. It's not about a compromise. Because that's keeping the peace. We are to make peace. Most of the time, peacemaking takes time. It takes a lot of time. Jesus has been reconciling the world back to him for 2,000 years. This takes a tremendous amount of time. So if you're uncomfortable, uh, if you're in an uncomfortable peacemaking situation right now, here's, here's some, uh, I pray, comfort to you. Number one, Start small and walk slow. Tell the truth. Wrapped up grace with grace and love. Romans 12, 18 says, as it depends on you. So good. Pray, pray, pray. And then when you meet with someone, at least start off and try to find some point of agreement. You're not probably going to solve this whole thing with a five-minute coffee conversation. Find some point of agreement between you two. Allow God to show up in their lives. Allow everybody to chew on that and know that the world is broken. This is messy. For the Lord to reconcile himself back to us was messy. In fact, it was bloodstained on that cross. This beatitude leads us to the last one for next Sunday. So if we are confronting sin like this, we know we're going to have problems. And nobody wants their sin confronted. Nobody. And next week, God willing, we're going to come back here and we're going to study the last beatitude, which deals with the reality of being a peacemaker. Father in heaven, what an amazing verse that you call us to be like yourself peacemakers. Lord, we have a lot to think about through this text. I pray that you continue to meet us uh, where we are with you today. Give us those steps that we need to take to be drawn closer to you. Those steps that, that we need to take uh, closer to someone that we're not at peace with. Lord, we pray for wisdom. Show us how to do this. You, you tell us that if we pray for wisdom, you'll give it to us. So we pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment. We pray for judgment. 
And we pray for your words and and your tone as we take this beatitude seriously. Lord, we love you. Thank you for allowing us to gather today. Thank you for allowing us to worship, to hear the word proclaimed, to serve and to give and to fellowship now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.